0: Welcome to Tech Talks, a podcast about the impact of technology on humanity. I'm Kirsten Martin, the director of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center, or what we like to call ND Tech. In these discussions, we discuss an important idea, paper, article, or discovery in tech ethics. And today, I'm so happy to be joined by Laura Brandemart. Laura is an assistant professor of management information systems at the University of Arizona, Eller College of Management. I met Laura during her time at Carnegie Mellon University, where she earned her PhD in public policy and management, and then was there for two years as a postdoc. Her areas of research include privacy, the psychology of self disclosure, and the social dynamics of privacy decision making and information sharing. In this series, our goal is to take one article, idea, or case and examine the larger implications for the field of tech ethics, including what someone who, for example, is hanging out in North Carolina reading hard copies of the Wall Street Journal and possibly looking at the weather like my dad, should know about the idea, just as an example. So today, I'd like to really take a deeper dive into your article that's pretty recent in 2022 in Science with Alessandro Achisti and Jeff Hancock about how privacy's past may shape its future. And I have to say, I, obviously, I met you at like a Privacy Law Scholars Conference and through Alessandro around privacy. And I what I really liked about this article was that rather than focusing on like the technology du jour of some disruption to what our notions of privacy and security are, that you all try to argue that, that there's evidence for us seeking to manage our boundaries of private and public that spans like time and space, that we, we've been constantly doing that. And I didn't know if you could speak a little bit more about, in the paper, how you guys argue that this is not a novel issue that we're dealing with, that we've actually been doing this a while.
1: Yes, well, first of all, thank you so much, Kirsten. It's such a pleasure to be here i love i love this this series and i'm I'm really thankful to you for inviting me so um it is true that we argue that in the paper, but it's not really our argument um so there have been people in the past, since the 70s, actually, that have been talking about how our management of privacy is something that spans cultures and times. So the main, I guess, reference that I would suggest if anyone is interested in these topics is Erwin Altman. He's a psychologist, a sociologist and psychologist. And he's the first one to have said, I think we even quote him in the paper. Um, He said that uh, privacy is at the same time universal, but also culturally specific. And what he means by that is that that every one of, uh, you know, every different culture in every different time may have different representations of what privacy means to their, to them, to their people. Um, But there is a, that we were able to observe a constant search in one way or the other for privacy intended as this ability to manage what is public and what is private Um, We don't mean to say that people in all ages, at all times, in all circumstances want to protect their privacy. That's not what privacy management is about. Obviously, there are tons of situations where it's great to share, right? Not just personal information, but also intimacy, experiences. There are immense benefits from it. And there's lots of literature in psychology that suggests that this this is true. And there is even some interesting work in neuroscience that says that Apparently, when people disclose intimate information, there are parts of the brains that fire that are the exact same that fire when you get a monetary reward. So disclosure, yeah, it's it's really um, intrinsically rewarding. Um, So. Privacy management is not about, you know, protecting your space necessarily. It's more about being able to moderate when to open and when to close, depending on the situation. And that is true of lots of cultures. And uh, I'll be happy to give references from ethnographical studies, uh, you know, qualitative type research that suggests that this is true in many cultures and many times during uh, the evolution of the human species.
0: That's what I, I found so like clearly written and well argued was this idea that that we sometimes over focus on privacy as this protective measure of the hiding part of it. and and we know that sometimes we rely on that in the scholarship too much. you know what I mean? Uh, this idea of inaccessibility as the definition and the construct of privacy. And what I liked about it and what you just said is that there's this beneficial side of privacy, meaning having a norm around information as it's shared, because we need to share information that's then confidential or protected. Like, so we need to be able to share something, as you point out, like, be able to lower our voices and speak privately, you know, and that you'll still share the information without it going anywhere. And that this is the way it's both protective and beneficial, if I understood.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think that part uh, of this is our fault, right? As privacy researchers, we sort of, in the last, you know, 20 years since the probably the evolution of Web 2.0, you know, like the commercial side of the internet, and we've seen how in a lot of situations, it's easy to disclose a lot about ourselves without actually realizing the risks associated with it. So a lot of us privacy researchers in the last few years have focused on these risks with you know associated with, with disclosure. And so I think that part of... That conception that privacy management is about hiding and, you know, protecting is, you know, in part our fault. But I think that it's because, you know, it's been the, the result of what we've seen uh, in the evolution of the Internet. Right. So companies have indeed become responsible for lots and lots of uh, campaigns about data collection. They've invested more and more into data harvesting, uh, not necessarily, you know, without the knowledge and consent of users. So we have seen this as sort of a trend in, in, in the last few years. And so that's why I think that the attention of the of the researchers has been in that area. But I am a firm believer in the fact that privacy, protecting privacy is not about building boundaries, you know, or raising walls. It's about managing them. It's about deciding what to disclose and when and in which situations.
0: Right. And 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 where can it go once you disclose it? So if I share something with you in the offline world, as you say, like we have muted voices, if we're in a crowded room and I'm telling you something private, you would understand by my muted voice that it wasn't actually meant for broad consumption. And uh what, what I thought was interesting is when you said there's in the paper that we don't have an analog to that Mm -hmm. in the digital world. There's no um, pulling you close to say, Hey, I just want to tell you something privately or just these three groups of people that are, our technology or social media is not actually set up for that right now. It's, It's almost like releasing of these boundaries so that if you tell one, you tell them all, like this idea.
1: Exactly, Kirsten. This is a great way to put it. So there there has been more and more work in usable security and privacy recently to build ways to communicate privately. So you see foundations like Signal, for instance, which is sort of this alternative to WhatsApp or, you know, Meta, Facebook, whatever, uh, which is based on this open source uh, end-to-end encrypted communication where you can communicate privately with somebody so that you are sure that if you're saying something to one person, you're just saying it to the one person and to nobody else. So there are certain guarantees that encryption can provide, but for sure, it's difficult to do the same kind of thing outside of end-to-end encryption, unless there is end-to-end encryption. If you use some kind of intermediary to communicate with somebody else, there is always you, the person that you're trying to reach, and the intermediary in the middle. And when there is the intermediary in the middle, unless there is regulation that imposes that intermediary not to share that information with third parties. Eventually, if it's profitable for them, they will. And so, I think that that's what happened uh, with with the data market, especially in the United States. In the United States, which for a large part is still unregulated, there are certain regulations with specific types of data, but in general, there is no yet uh, umbrella federal regulation about data in general. And so it's really difficult to know once you shared something with a company, maybe you trust that one company uh, with your data, but then that company a lot of times ends up sharing it with other third parties without you knowing. And I guess uh, my research um, has been trying to do something about that. We've been trying to develop something that might help essentially trace the flow of, of the data in the data markets. You know, we're trying to raise the veil uh, of you know that that hides all of this unknown data market uh, that exists uh, among companies and data brokers. But it's something that really I think requires a shift in the mentality. So companies might you know they, they have to understand that it's not just about harvesting as much data as possible because at some point you might be able to do something with it. It's more about collecting what information is necessary in order to provide a good service to the user. And I think that that mentality shift still hasn't happened, especially in, um, in the United States, not yet.
0: Right. And what I liked about, I think the term that I've heard some of you use privately, but also in this paper is the responsabilization of this focus of, in the United States, we've really put a focus on over emphasizing the responsibility of the individual to navigate, as you mentioned This really unknown market of data that's hidden. Uh, Even us researchers don't know it. Like it's really, you'd think that we should know where 60% of the internet traffic is going because it's all this trading with data traffickers back and forth, yet we don't actually have that information. And it's this focus in the United States on, well, you, the individual, should have known better when you were sharing information with that website or that app or you downloaded something as to everything that was going to be going on versus the shift that you're talking about, which is asking the intermediary, the website, the app, the social media company, what are you responsible for? Like, what are you? What data are you gathering? How are you using it? You should be able to justify this. Why are we asking the individual to make all these decisions? Which is a, which is a shift in our mentality here in the United States because that is not how we think about things right now.
1: Yes, uh, exactly. So we argue essentially that there are many reasons why we really can't make the user responsible for making the best possible privacy decision for themselves. One of the reasons is asymmetric information, for instance. So people, when, when we use the internet, we don't use the internet uh, with the primary goal of protecting our privacy, right? Or uh, having our security guaranteed. We go on the internet because we need to do things. We need to do stuff. We need to take classes. We need to buy things. We need to uh, teach. We need to, we need to do things. And so privacy and security will never be our first concern. And... That is the first reason. The second is that we don't really know, like we mentioned, what is going to happen once we share uh, information on the internet. It's not really clear where that information is going. Even if we didn't know where the information is going, we wouldn't really understand what are all the risks and benefits associated with that disclosure. Yes, we all understand that, you know, if we sign up for a loyalty program at our, you know, store, uh, grocery store, we'll get some points or, you know, we get discounts. But then on top of that, what else? What happens? So the consequences are not really clear of what is going to happen. And third, uh, we tend to skip, you know, all the information that were provided by companies that are just trying to abide by the law. If the law focuses so much on notice and consent, which is what has happened in the United States, essentially companies are in the clear as long as they have a long privacy policy that explains, uh, you know, details about where the data is is going and what's been used for. But we or don't not, read Or those. no details. There are no details. Like they and could just say not much. Yeah,
0: right. Exactly.
1: It's not really transparency, right? So the, the core of the law Law. It's just about providing information to the people so that the people can make good decisions for them. But we can't do that, right? We, we're not going to, there's lots of work. Uh, Lori Craner is a great researcher at Carnegie Mellon. She's done incredible work on the economic costs of reading privacy policies. If each one of us, just in the United States, were to read all the privacy policies of all the websites that, you know, we interact with, basically, we would end up losing something in the billions of dollars per year, which is insane, obviously. So, that approach of uh, uh, giving the users all the responsibility to make decisions when it comes to privacy is really, it, it's not effective. Uh, it doesn't really help the consumer at all. Uh, it only provides a lot of weight and responsibility to the user, which they can't handle. That's
0: great. And I, what I liked in the paper was Like the suggestion that I like the analogy that you all made to cars, right? And so when we, when we started going faster with cars and we can see the analogy of like our information is flowing faster online, we had to, all of a sudden we had technological improvements, we could go a lot faster, and we added laws and technical fixes. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't just say, oh, wow, a lot more people are dying. You know, like, what are we going to do? We actually started doing things about it, um, both regulating how drivers acted, but also regulating how car manufacturers behaved, and then having technical fixes. And I didn't know if you could speak a little bit about that. I like that parallel, because sometimes we think uh, there's no way to regulate this or there's nothing that we can do or no fixes. And yet we've we've dealt with these things before.
1: Yes, that's an analogy that I owe 100% to my co-author, Alessandra Christie, who was also my advisor. I think it's a great analogy. It, it makes perfect sense, right? So uh, like you said, the development of technology in cars has made it so that at some point cars were becoming more and more dangerous and we weren't able to handle them. And what happened when, you know, when those technologies arrived, when those new technologies arrived. It's not like we trained people to be more responsive, for instance. Uh, we didn't rely, we didn't put the responsibility on them. We simply imposed regulations that said, okay, on this particular roads, you can't go faster than so-and-so. And if you do go faster, you're going to get fined for it. And similarly, we said to the manufacturers, you have to build a particular technological um, solutions to help the users because they are not to be considered responsible for the development of technology, right? So, you you add ABS systems like braking systems, right? Or uh, airbags, for instance, and you make seatbelts mandatory, right? So, there are specific regulations that can help the uh, relationship between humans and technology when technology moves so fast that humans can't keep up, essentially. So there are certain things that we can do at the regulatory level, which we've done, like you said, in the past for similar issues. So our argument is why not do that in the realm of privacy as well? Other countries have done that, all kinds of countries, you know, uh, not just Europe, but China has developed their own regulation for internet privacy. Australia have their own. Um, So it's not just, you know, GDPR. Everybody's so focus nowadays on the general data protection regulation, but it's not just Europe. It's it's a lot of other countries. So why shouldn't or couldn't the US do a similar thing where there is an intervention at the federal level, allowing therefore for a general protection of data that goes beyond specific regulations of, I don't know, health-related data or educational uh, records and so on and so forth. There are these types of data that are protected in the United States, but why not make it general so that Data is data essentially. And so the data market itself is regulated.
0: Well, and especially because the data market itself really doesn't have any market pressures. You and I are in business school, so yeah, we talk about yeah. these things. And so the data market itself is odd because we, there's no consumer pressure there's no real S e c pressure I mean like all the normal pressure points that we might see um, of uh, the market correcting the bad behavior of these data traffickers that are hidden behind the scenes trading information we don't have those normal mechanisms and uh and it is it's also interesting from the car industry standpoint because our automotive industry, at least in the United States, similarly argued against regulations. <laughs> And um, for decades, you know, and said that if you regulate us, like, we will go out of business and there's absolutely no way that we'd be able to continue to make cars. So this is a normal give and take, you know what I mean? Like, technology gets faster, people start getting hurt, you know what I mean? Like, we try to figure out what to do about it. The industry says there's no way, otherwise we'll go out of business. And then somehow they persevere, you know what I mean? Like, they they kind of make it through. Exactly. Um, I really. I really like the, the paper mainly, I mean, for many reasons. Like, I, I love the historical nature of our need. As you said, the history of privacy tells us that the drive to maintain a private space may be as universal as the drive to commune. And I think that this shift of thinking about privacy as a need to be secluded, which we, you have to either be secluded or interact versus this drive for privacy that we've always had is actually tied in with the need to interact, to commune with people. And so it's it's not seclusion. It's the opposite of that. It's the idea that we should be able to commune, have a community, talk, develop ourselves in society by interacting with other people within understandings about how that information will be used. Um, it's actually the opposite of the way we've been thinking about it. And, and that we have this need, as you said, to carve out those spaces, even when the odds are stacked against us, which I which I, I just thought was a great summary of the article.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Kirsten. I think that you summarized it even better than we wrote it. Uh, but Oh, no, yeah, I was reading <laughs> <it's>, from it. <laughs> it. It's great. No, it it, it really, though, that's, that's what we believe, right? So um, when whenever you uh, confide in somebody, right, you tell them something about yourself, essentially what you're doing is you're trusting them that the information that you give to them is going to stay between the two of you. And that kind of relationship is... Um, why shouldn't that kind of relationship be similar to what happens with, I don't know, Google or Facebook or um, other other companies, right? You should be able to trust the companies that you interact with because after all, you give them, you know, we give Amazon our addresses, our credit card numbers. So there is an embedded trust relationships between the consumer and, uh, you know, uh, commercial companies, obviously. So I think that what, customers would want when it comes to exchanging data with other companies is precisely that kind of trust. We would like for these kinds of transactions to uh, happen in the realm of trust. So you should be able to share information with your provider without the fear that that provider is going to share that information with third parties. And it doesn't matter whether we consider that information to be intimate or sensitive, because nowadays, anything can be Translated into something sensitive or important. When Cambridge Analytica happened, nobody had thought about the consequences of sharing your psychological tests, right? So people were lured into this, this disclosing this information because they were asked a simple question, such as, uh, you know, what kind of type of person you are? Do you want to know what, what profile, psychological profile you have? Answer these five questions and we'll tell you. That seemed pretty tame, right? And then of course we. Realize that that was not that tame. So it's not about necessarily disclosing information that is sensitive. Nowadays, anything, one way or the other, can turn out to be sensitive. And so it would like for that relationship that you have with companies to be based on trust. And I'm afraid that um, unless in that respect our incentives are not really aligned. Uh, There's uh, there's very, there's more that we have to gain from that kind of relationships than companies have as of now, you know, because of the lack of regulation and because of the way that the data market is structured. So unless we find a way to align those incentives, it's going to be hard uh, to establish that trust relationships with other companies. And we argue that one way to do that, to align those incentives is indeed via regulation.
0: That's great. Yeah. I really, I really, I mean, I enjoy, I like, I like a lot of the work that you do with your co-authors and by yourself. And so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. And I, and I always look forward to seeing what you guys are writing about next and what you're writing about next. And I, and I want to just wrap up by asking, are there like who, who else should we be paying attention to in the area of tech ethics with the idea of, you know, not necessarily only within our discipline, but also just any discipline that you, are there scholars that you're following right now that you're waiting to see what they write next?
1: Yes, absolutely. This is something that I'm actually very excited about. Tech ethics is, you know, it's, it's what I do. And, and so I'm, I'm very passionate about this. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from uh, a PhD, recent PhD graduate, very recent, uh, Joy Boulamwini. She just recently graduated from MIT. She does excellent work in tech She's ethics. Great. Yeah. Her dissertation is basically, it's a study of, algorithmic bias in the field of computer vision. And her story, I actually got to know about her. I don't know her personally, but I got to know about her from a documentary that I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in algorithmic bias and tech ethics in general. It's called Coded Bias. And in that that documentary, she tells her story of how she started her PhD. She was just studying a computer vision algorithm uh, with, with face recognition, essentially. So the capabilities of algorithms to detect face. And she noticed that she is a black student. She was a black student and the algorithm couldn't recognize her face. Then she put a white mask on and all of a sudden the algorithm was able to detect the face. And so she said, this, is, you know, there's something wrong here. There is something really, really wrong. And so she started her whole PhD thesis based on that idea that sometimes because of the way that algorithms are trained and built, uh, they have an inbuilt bias, which is probably unintended, right? We're not saying that right. companies build algorithms in a it, to in order to be biased, in order to cause no, bias, right. but it's just because of the way that they're trained, they end up to uh, provide bias uh, biases in their results, and so we have to be aware of uh, those those kinds of biases. And I think that Joy is really uh, an excellent researcher who's done really really great work up to now. So. I'm, definitely looking, Always forward looking forward to seeing to, yeah. yes, what she's doing next.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, gosh, I really, I so appreciate uh, your time and everything. And I, I hope you'll come on again. Like I'll watch for your next paper and then send you another email to say, hey, you want to come on and talk about this? So <laughs> I would be honored, Kirsten.
1: Thank you so much.
0: This is great. I always enjoy your work and I really appreciate you taking the time. So thanks so much. Thank you so much,
1: Kristen. And also, I appreciate your work as well. It's fantastic. You're uh, definitely a pioneer. So thank you for all that you do.
0: (laughs) You're so nice. Thank you so much. Tech Talks is a production of the Notre Dame Technology Ethics Center. For more, visit techethics.nd.edu.